Hello and welcome to the Master of Divinity podcast. This is our final episode in the series called Misunderstood Christianity, and perhaps the closest to my heart. I first became interested in labor history at York University in Toronto, a bit of a hotbed of radicalism then and now. Later in seminary, I learned about the labor church movement, perhaps the very definition of misunderstood and forgotten Christianity. So thank you for joining me today. The Winnipeg General Strike, to date the only general strike in Canadian history, began on May the 15th, 1919. Immediately, 30,000 workers left their jobs. The first out were members of various unions involved in the building and metal trades. Retail workers followed, transit stopped, and various public employees went out, including police, firemen, and utility workers. A central strike committee was formed, made up of delegates from each of the unions. Then they set about formulating a set of key demands that included collective bargaining rights, wage hikes, and better working conditions. The committee organized to provide essential services, encouraging police and fire services to go back to work and preparing to negotiate. With nearly the entire working population of the city on strike, a response came very quickly. A citizens committee of a thousand was formed with owners and managers trying to regain control. Newspapers condemned the strike, and even the New York Times reported that Soviet-style Bolshevism had invaded Canada. The police were dismissed and replaced with special constables. And they were just warming up. The Citizens Committee appealed to the Dominion Cabinet for help, arguing that the overthrow of the government was the striker's goal. By May 24th, the Minister of the Interior and Acting Justice Minister, Arthur Meehan, began to describe the strikers as revolutionists. Meehan ordered the army to Winnipeg, along with a stronger Northwest Mounted Police presence, and Parliament was presented with legislation that permitted the deportation of British subjects or foreign-born radicals found guilty of plotting revolution. The bill passed in one hour. Meanwhile, back in Winnipeg, the city decided to move against the Central Strike Committee. Eight members were arrested, including Alderman A.A. Heaps and J.S. Woodsworth, former Methodist minister and superintendent of the All People's Mission in the north end of Winnipeg. The following day, June 21st, 25,000 strikers assembled in Market Square, prompting the mayor to read the Riot Act. Mayor Charles Frederick Gray, just to establish the name of the villain of this story, called in the Mounties and encouraged them to charge the crowd, which they did, on horseback. Dozens were badly beaten and injured, and two strikers were shot dead. Within five days, the strike was called off. Being good historians, we're interested in context. What led to this moment? How did it become so polarized so quickly? And why Winnipeg? And why on earth did they name that building on St. Clair Avenue East in Toronto for Arthur Meehan? First, a look at organized labor. Until the middle of the 19th century, workers in Canada were primarily farmers and craftsmen. 
With the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, this began to shift as advances in technology allowed for industrialized workers to emerge who fit in neither of the above category. Miners, mill workers, and steel workers were among the first to emerge in this transition from handmade to factory produced. The first unions, then, were craftsmen trying in vain to protect their craft. Hundreds of local trade-based unions formed and eventually came together to form the Trades and Labor Congress in 1886. They were the first bureaucratic unions in the sense that we know them now, with Voltan leaders, strike funds, and strict definitions of who could join. These unions were also the first to foster a sense of working-class culture, with meetings, newspapers, and social events. The TLC also lobbied government on various issues with varied success to end child labor, to end the use of convict labor, and to curtail immigration, particularly of the poor and unskilled. Back to our miners, mill workers, and the like, they formed the second wave of organized labor, the industrial unions. These are the unskilled laborers who were more focused on the rights of workers generally than the future of a particular craft. They tended to be more radical in outlook, with many coming from nations with more experience in class struggle, particularly the UK and Europe. These workers were also the first to experience tailorism, a method of scientific management that reduced work to its most simple form while timing the worker performing the task. Remember, this was the era of no pensions, no paid vacation, no overtime pay, no extra pay for Sunday or night work, no health care or old age insurance, except in Germany, uh, no unemployment compensation, uh, except in Britain after 1911, and they had no job security whatsoever. Workers were poorly paid, poorly treated, and could be replaced on a whim. Conditions were awful and often dangerous. 1,500 Chinese workers were killed on the B.C. section of the CPR alone, giving rise to the adage that one man died for every mile of track laid. In 1911, in New York's Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, 146 workers were killed. The exits were blocked to prevent pilferage and unauthorized work breaks. And the youngest to die was Mary Goldstein, age 11. An even greater danger was poverty. J.S. Woodsworth, writing in 1911, quoted an issue of the Winnipeg Telegram, uh, writing, The health inspector rudely paid a midnight visit to the place at 47 Austin Street. There he found 32 men living where there should be seven, according to the laws of health. One room, 13 by 9 feet, eight occupants, should be two. Or this one from Walter Rauschenbusch. In the district between 10th and 11th Avenues in New York City, 1,321 families shared three bathtubs. Woodsworth uh, cites U.S. statistics in his book, perhaps for a lack of Canadian data, that give a snapshot of how society was structured in this period. The rich, the 1%, controlled 54.8% of the wealth, uh, what he calls the middle, 
uh, 10% of the population, controlled 32% of the wealth. The poor, uh, making up 38% of the population, controlled 13% of the wealth. And the very poor, uh, the bottom 50%, controlled no wealth at all. Curiously, not a lot has changed. Looking at the first quarter of 2023 here in the United States, uh, the 1% control 18.5% of the wealth. The 90 to 99% uh, control 37.7% of the wealth. The, uh, could we call the middle class, 50 to 90% group control 28.6%. And the bottom half, 0 to 49%, control just 2.4% of the wealth. That's enough of my York University radicalism coming out. Going back to uh, Canada before the First World War, uh, we had a deeply poor population, a fairly open immigration policy, 400,000 immigrants in 1912 alone, uh, and 500,000 returning First World War veterans in varying degrees of health. They began the war with great enthusiasm for fighting the Kaiser and king and country and all that, but returned with a very different sense of what they had done. Many were aware that in the end, the war was working people fighting against working people. This was a moment of increased class consciousness, where soldiers realized that they had more in common with the men in the other trenches than the people directing the war on their side. So we don't have time to do a complete look at the social gospel movement, uh, but I will quote Walter Rauschenbusch, Baptist minister, social scientist, and father of the social gospel. Like Woodsworth in Winnipeg, Rauschenbusch begins with localized poverty, in this case, the Hell's Kitchen neighborhood of New York City. And he develops a theory of social reconstruction based on Christian ethics. Here's a couple of quotes from A Theology of the Social Gospel from 1917, which it should be noted was the best-selling religious book in the U.S. for three years following its publication. He says, first, the kingdom of God is not a matter of getting individuals to heaven, but of transforming the life on earth into the harmony of heaven. He also said Jesus has been called the first socialist. He was more the beginning of a new humanity. But as such, he bore within him the germs of a new social and political order. He was too great to be the savior of a fractional part of human life. His redemption extends to all human needs and powers and relations. End quote. The Methodist Church is also an important bit of context in our story. It can be argued that the same divide that currently exists between congregations and the national church existed a hundred years ago. Local congregations were content to follow the traditional Methodist emphasis on evangelism, holiness, and improving the human condition. The national church, however, was increasingly interested in social reconstruction and remaking the existing order of things. The social gospel was a key factor in this shift in understanding, along with increased inequality in the First World War period. 
at the 1918 General Assembly of the Methodist Church, meeting in Hamilton, Ontario, the National Church called for, quote, the dismantling of the capitalist system and its replacement with a new cooperative social order, unquote. No doubt many church folk then as now simply shook their heads and ignored the motions that came from the highest court of the church, but others did not. In Western Canada, the center of radicalism within the Methodist Church, pastors and congregations were in conflict over both social reconstruction and the war. J.S. Woodsworth finally left the ministry over church support for the war effort. Uh, William Evans of McDougall Memorial Church uh, in Winnipeg found himself in the same conflict and resigned from the church. A.E. Smith of Brandon, Manitoba, publicly supporting a sympathetic strike at the same time as the Winnipeg strike, was also forced out of the pulpit at First Methodist. The question, what to do, was generally answered in the political realm. In 1920, both Smith and Evans were elected to provincial parliament as labor MLAs, Evans elected while in prison, serving a one-year prison term for sedition. Woodsworth helped found the Independent Labor Party and was elected to the House of Commons to represent the writing of Winnipeg North, a constituency he would represent until his death in 1942. Evans and Smith, along with several others, also felt a call to be religious leaders in this era of social reconstruction. Both founded labor churches after leaving the Methodist Church, and both understood that a workers' church would be the cornerstone of this new cooperative social order. At the inaugural service of Winnipeg's labor church, 200 attendees signed a card saying, I am willing to support an independent and creedless church based on the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Its aim shall be the establishment of justice and righteousness among men of all nations. End quote. Ironically, one of the best first-hand accounts of the labor church comes from the efforts of a Mountie spy at the National Methodist Church. T.A. Moore, future United Church moderator, was then the Methodist General Secretary for Social Service and Evangelism. He was one of many church leaders who saw the labor church movement as a threat to the unity of the church, so decided to forward information to the Royal Northwest Mounted Police, also investigating the labor church. Moore managed to get Bernice Bridgen, a former staff member active in the Brandon Labor Church, to forward information on the goings-on in Brandon. This information was then passed on to the Mounties. The People's Church congregation, as Brandon Church was called, was entirely working class, mostly railway workers, and it was three-quarters men. Bridgen makes special note of this being as unusual then as it would be now. She notes that the previous Sunday evening collection was $93, $60 from envelopes. It was noted that the People's Church was likely the largest congregation in the city at that moment. So let's take a closer look. 
The morning service was focused on religious education and based on what she described as the plan of Dr. Soares of Chicago University. The exact form uh, she is describing may be lost to history, but other churches followed a standard pattern of readings, prayer, and an address rather than a sermon. Hymns tended to be from an alternate hymn collection related to the social gospel, and the first reading was generally secular in nature related to the worker's struggle. The evening service, then uh, standard in most Protestant churches, was centered on a discussion regarding the social gospel. The membership of the Brandon Church was eclectic, to say the least. She describes three members, an Austrian Greek Catholic, uh, an influential Jew, and a man recently paroled for attempted murder. She notes with regret that while many in the Methodist Church claim it is the people's church, the truth seems to be otherwise. She points to the experience of William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army and a former Methodist, someone who tried to innovate and ended up outside the church. Sadly, we know little about the end of the labor church movement. By 1925, most congregations no longer met. Some argue that the lack of doctrine was the root cause of their demise, uh, following the seed-fallen-on-rocky-ground theory. Others argue that the immediate decline in union membership after the Winnipeg general strike also adversely affected the labor church movement, another possibility, or increased prosperity, the rise of consumer culture, the emergence of the middle class, a decline in class consciousness. All, all these could be factors. At the very least, the labor church movement deserves recognition and study. For a brief moment, there was a religious movement dedicated to applied Christianity, where creed was secondary to fellowship, and the glue was the workers' struggle. It's easy to dismiss the movement in the same way many dismiss organized labor today, but recall that organized labor was the very first social justice movement, and gave us many of the elements of social reconstruction we enjoy today. So as you prepare for your weekend, thank a union member. The men and women of the labor church were the first Matthew 25 Christians, rejecting otherworldly belief for the sake of the least of these among us. So that's all for today and for these four episodes called Misunderstood Christianity. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review at Apple or Google, and thank you for joining me.